Okay, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna. And many other women who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray. Lord, you have shown yourself by your Spirit in the context of the Gospel as ever-present and precious to the souls of those whom you have and are delivering from the perils and effects, both future and present of sin. My prayer is that through your servant Luke in this text and what he is telling us, you continue to do that in our lives to the glory of your name and to the exaltation of the love of your Father who is our Father through you, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In this journey through Luke, we, we have seen as Jesus has started his ministry, he has gone from town to town and different synagogues, and Luke has just given us glimpses of this traveling itinerant ministry. And then, here, the beginning of the chapter, all of a sudden, he kind of like opens a curtain real quickly and say. Here's a glimpse of behind the scenes of Jesus' ministry. And he just closes it up and he moves on. And it's a wonderful glimpse. That's why we're just going to stay here this morning and look at it. The question that this text raises is this. How did Jesus, and now the twelve apostles whom he's chosen out of many disciples who left their livelihood in job and money-making, how in the world do they go from town to town, city to city, and eat food? And pay for rent, or a night's sleep in an inn? Who's doing all the cooking, and a lot of the stuff that needs to be done for this to happen? I'm convinced that one of the reasons Dr. Luke, 30 years later, when he's writing to Gentiles, Theophilus and other Gentile Christians who have come to know Christ and they want to know more about Him, I'm convinced the reason he just shoved this in there is because he wants to demonstrate the importance of the whole life of the body of Christ. 
of the local church. As the way the Apostle Paul would later write it from 1 Corinthians 12. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What we see in this text this morning is that every person who has experienced deliverance by the Lord Jesus Christ is put into ministry. See, the word ministry, it is the same word as service. They're put into serving the Lord vertically, which overflows horizontally. And, that's not all we see here. What we see in this text is that service flows from each person's love for Jesus. Let's go to the text. In verse 1 we read of Luke 8. Soon afterward, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Okay. So, so Luke is another, another, like what he's been doing, he's going to, big quick summary again. He's just continuing on. A lot of stuff Luke's not telling us. Cities, and little villages, and another town. And it's going on and 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 on. And Jesus is doing the same thing he's already been doing. What's his message? The good news or the gospel. The good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God which he's been preaching. That the promise of the Old Testament for centuries is being fulfilled because the king is here. So he's going and he's not doing this in isolation. He has the twelve with him now and he is training them to one day take over his preaching ministry when he's gone. And not only were the twelve with him, But Luke lets us know there was another group of people with them. We read in verse 2, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities or sicknesses. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here Luke tells us, there's these, he gives us three particular women by name, but there are many more than these three whom he says are supporting the itinerant, traveling, preaching, teaching ministry of Jesus and His twelve apostles. Most likely doing the shopping, the cooking, preparation, all that behind the scenes stuff. 
in financing it. They are, in other words, Luke tells us, the engine. They're the, they're the, the power, the enabling of what we're reading about Jesus in this ministry to happen. So let's just stop. We're going to pause. We've got to think about this dynamic. Okay? Don't let it fly over our heads. <laughs> this is Jesus' ministry. He just raised a dead young man who was cold and hard. Come to life and he does. He has been from town and to town to city and open squares healing people who were blind and now they see. Who were deaf and now they hear. Who were crippled and they walk. This is the Jesus who... We don't have time for shopping. How many fish you got? What, five? And seven? And from those five, He miraculously, He's bringing the kingdom, He is the king, He has all authority. He feeds over 5,000 people. Okay. This is the Jesus who's going to tell Peter, go down there, get a fish, out of its mouth you'll find money. In order to pay the taxes. Okay. All right. So, why does Jesus receive the money from these women? Do you ever ask those kinds of questions? I do. And I like to have answers. Why is he doing that? I mean, if he wanted to, every day he could miraculously have himself and his band of travelers fed and bedded. So why does he take their money? Here's the best answer I know. If you know a better one, give me it. He does it because he loves them. Because what this text is telling us is that these women financing this itinerant ministry of Jesus is their blessing. And he doesn't want to take it away from them. Okay, you follow. I'm going to go real slow and just think about it. Remember, this comes right after what we just saw with the prostitute. It's the same dynamic. Everyone else didn't get it. Jesus did. This prostitute, probably fairly wealthy, had some very costly perfume, not just standard oil. And Jesus didn't freak out when she dumped it all over his feet. Other people did. Why? The whole point of that text was because, remember his parable? Simon, she loves much. That's why she does this. Am I to steal that from her? That's why God has set things up in such a way that His people who are delivered like the prostitute, like Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, and the women, and all who are His, He gives them the conduit of giving of their hard-earned money for the proclamation and extension and existence of the gospel and in its local 
communities. Okay, let's just... God is sovereign. Jesus could feed 5,000 with a few fish. Okay. Okay, I'm going to slow down on sovereignty. A lot of people who want to love it, sometimes they say things like, that's not what I believe. Okay, so let me give you an example. It is possible, not only possible, it is, I think, biblically demanded to understand that God is in absolute control of all things. That's what I mean by sovereignty. So if, you, if a house gets built, it didn't get built outside of God's will and purpose and cause. Yet, the way, things got, the way God set up the world is if the carpenter doesn't take the hammer and drive the nails into the board, they will not go in. Is that a contradiction? Not at all. If the nail goes in by means of the carpenter driving it in, it is because God sovereignly willed that that happened. So, having said that, that's why I want to, I want to give that preface a second. I'm going to be very careful in how I say this. He is, therefore, utterly sovereign. That's a different level than another level. He's utterly sovereign, yes. Now, on another level, the carpenter will drive the nail into the board. And if he does not do it, it will not happen. God is utterly sovereign. And on another level, what this text is saying is that these women did not financially support and then serve this band and help them out that that ministry of Jesus in the Twelve would not have functioned as it did. See, God is sovereign, and so in, in the future from here, He knows He's going, let me assume that Paul got to Spain, okay guys? Those of you who know your Bible. He knows that He purposes, God Himself, to get Paul to Spain. What conclusions do you draw? Well, therefore the carpenter doesn't need to drive the hammer. No. Therefore, Paul writes a letter to the church at Rome and he says to them, please give money to get me to Spain. And there's no contradiction there. Hundreds of thousands of churches exist today because people are driving nails into wood. Because people whom God delivers finance them, serve in those churches, cause them to happen. And many churches struggle in a way they won't because carpenters aren't driving nails. And if don't do it right now because I want to think that if you're looking at the Bible, if you've got your iPod, but if, if you just Google some kind of statistic, how many churches close every month in America, you would be shocked. And they close because different reasons. <laughs> and this is one of them. No one's driving. Nails. We had the privilege Wednesday of having a missionary to Africa at home group. And this is the reason I got, and I know most of you probably do know this. I just want to make it clear because it's hard for missionaries to say it. Most missionaries do not want to come back to America or Britain or anywhere else in the West and spend months asking people for money. It's uncomfortable. And it would be great if they never had to do it. But to do. Because that's how missions happen or don't happen. In other words, 
Here's my, remember my contention. Why did Jesus receive the money? Because he loves them. Because that giving was their blessing. It's the way God set it up. Think about it. In the old covenant, where, got to get this, where many people who were in that covenant, Israel, were, many of them were not born again. They were not spirit filled. They had no regeneration and new life, and yet God still instituted for them the tithe. Off the, 10% off of all your crops, all your income, first. Okay. Then, what we're reading here, Jesus, the one bearing the kingdom, comes on the scene and delivers, for, for instance, Mary from seven demons. And gives her forgiveness of sins. And like the prostitute, before. And then what springs forth from that? New life and joy that they participate in the support of this glorious preaching ministry of Jesus. Okay. Let, me, let me assume that you buy that. So let, let, let's think through this. If if it's true that giving of hard-earned money to the gospel in this relationship with God, that's something part of my life. If that is not manipulation from a pastor or preachers on TV, which a lot of times that is, okay? But if that is actually and really a blessing to the people, then it would be unloving of God to deprive the people of that opportunity. He does it because He loves us. I'll give a couple of examples. When Jesus, by the Spirit, brings the Gospel to people and He delivers them from demonic activity or sin, future condemnation. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I think when human beings experience that, there's something within them that wants to say to Christ, and I think we did that here this morning, thank you. Okay, therefore, what, do you, what, what, what should we conclude about what God instructs us in Scripture? Oh, He doesn't need to tell us to thank Him. But that's not how the Bible works. Because God loves us and He wants to manifest it, that's why... All over the Scripture, He constantly commands His people, Thank me. Give thanks for the Lord. Is Okay, you got that dynamic? Because He loves us. Because the actual delight in worship, thank you, Jesus, is His command of freedom to us to express that. Okay, you, you get delivered by Christ. You come to Christ... There's something within being in the image of God as human beings that wants to sing. So he commands all over the Psalms, sing a new song. He commands throughout the New Testament, sing and make melody to the Lord with your hearts. Okay. There's something within believers who have come to Christ. This is the way the Apostle John will say it, ultimately. That if really, truly, Week after week, month after month, you really have no love for 
other people who are delivered by Jesus? John will say, it's because you're not born again. Oh, okay, so, so therefore, I conclude, there's something within us, it's called God, the Holy Spirit, in new birth, that produces this desire to actually express love horizontally. Therefore, throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament, we're constantly commanded to love. As Peter would say in chapter 4, love, use your differing gifts, whether you speak or whether you serve. Okay, do it all vertically to God, overflowing here so it's pure love, because it's within you. Believers want to live in dependence upon God as the source of everything they have. All of their food and their housing and that they have this roof over their head. And they, therefore, it's there. No, not without sin in every one of us. It's there that they want to express the freedom that I'm owned by Him. The way God expresses it in Scripture. Of giving to Him the first fruits for you can trust Him. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. That's why the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, when he's referring to people's hard-earned money and giving it for the gospel, for brothers and sisters. In, in this particular case, it's for other believers in Judea, in Jerusalem, who are really suffering in poverty. Paul, his whole argument is that this, well, what's going on in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, what's going on in Joanna, in Mary Magdalene, and all these other ones, what's going on in 2 Corinthians 8 is the manifestation of God's very powerful grace working in the people who give. Chapter 8, verse, start with verse 1, 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Okay, don't miss that. Paul says, we want you, because now he's writing to the church at Corinth. We want you, Corinth, and what he's doing, he's raising money for very poverty-stricken believers in Judea. And he's going to have a whole band, and they're going to take all of that money to them as he's going from church to church. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches over here in this other region called Macedonia. Now he explains. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, sounds like Mary Magdalene and Joanna to me, their abundance of joy and their extreme, ooh, mixed with, not really rich, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity on their part. Before, Paul says, let me explain. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief 
of fellow Christians, the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, so let me summarize this part. For the believer to not be allowed to offer up to God their joy and their faith off the top of their earnings would be like God saying, I know that it's spiritually good for you believers to sing. And I know that it's spiritually good for you believers to give thanks to me. And and I know it's spiritually good for you to serve one another and love one another, but I'm not going to allow you to do that. I remember when we planted this church what is it, eight and a half, nine years ago. We're about a year in, and I, I don't know, I never doc- documented, but I, it's probably like 40 hours a week I put in. And for that whole first year, I got paid zero, because it's okay, there's no money there. And I had a, you know, work in my painting business, and so another 30, 35 hours a week. And a well-meaning person suggested, well, since you have such financial struggle in your family, why don't you just withhold your tithe since you're the pastor and you can use that money? Now, I'm internally, I didn't, I was livid. I I thought he was out of his mind because that would have been stealing from me and my wife what God has always placed in our lives since she was a Christian and I was a Christian, as single people and married people. It is a spiritual activity and expression of dependence, whether having much or having little. God, this is my expression to you. It's that deep experiential faith and joy that is working in these women as they're serving and cooking and financing these 13 in ministry. Now notice back in our text, Luke 8, there were many other women who were providing for the group, but Luke mentions three. First, he mentions Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 2. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Okay. Some of these women, he says, like Mary, were getting delivered from evil spirits. Mary's one. Magdalene is most likely because she's from the region of Magdala, which is up there by the Sea of Galilee. And this is where all this ministry in Luke so far is going on. And contrary to a lot of tradition and popular opinion, there's no evidence whatsoever in the New Testament that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. All we know is she was possessed by seven demons. We don't even know what those demons did to her, how they affected her, how much was physical, how much, we don't have no idea. But I think we can assume this. If you had seven demons and Jesus delivered you, you're a pretty miserable person. 
and Mary Magdalene. I'm going to read some text because I just... We come across this name, let's see her, because she's in Holy Scripture by God's sovereign purposes. Luke has us. Who knows how, at this point, he's just kind of given a summary. I don't know if the cross is a year away or two years away at this time, if Jesus has already probably been close to a year in ministry, but it's hard to tell. Okay? But you got this idea now. She's part of this group. She's left, left whatever she's leaving. And, and she's with this band in serving and financing. And here's Mary Magdalene. And then so you go, whether a year, two years down the road, you say, oh boy, she's still there. For instance, Matthew 27, verses 55 to 56. When Jesus is dragged out of the city, she's walking. When they get to the hill, this Mary is there. We read, there were also... Many women there, probably most of these women who are part of the group, many women there looking on at Jesus on the cross from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Then, after Jesus' death, she's at the tomb. Matthew 27:59 And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb and Luke records it this way. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how His body laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And then Sabbath came so they couldn't go back to the tomb. And so, But we pick up in Matthew 28.1, He lets us know this. Now after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And now I want to read the way and what John tells us happened. But Mary stood, this is after the earthquake, the angel appeared and all that. Mary Magdalene stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One angel at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus, okay, okay, stop. This person she's serving dinner and lunch to for the last couple of years loves. He's delivered her. This is, God, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And he's dead. She's looking for his dead body. And then Jesus is standing there. 
And she doesn't know it. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she grabbed hold of him, squeezed into Jesus' head and said, you gotta, okay, you've got to stop doing this now, Mary. Okay. Right. This is Mary. What would propel such a woman to leave whatever life she's leaving and go with some crazy evangelistic band up and down? A personal encounter. Then Luke tells us, oh, there's another woman named Joanna. And, and later Luke lets us know that Joanna was also there at the tomb. In Luke 24:10, quote, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. What I missed it. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna. And Mary, the mother of James, the other women with them, who then from the tomb went back to the apostles and told them about the resurrection. Now this Joanna, she was what you would call upper class in society. You know Herod? He's got a lot of wealth. When you have his position in government, you're very rich. He's the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. Joanna's husband, his job was he was in charge of this very wealthy man's private estate. He ran it. I don't know what happened with her, it doesn't say. She's delivered of demons, sickness, or just hears the gospel and she, she's changed. But her husband's still alive and somehow he must have given her permission and She's kind of gone for a long time with this band of people. And thirdly, he mentions Susanna. That's all we know about her. It's the only time she's ever mentioned. Maybe because Luke knows that Susanna was very well known in the early church in the Jerusalem area. Okay. These women, in what we see in the text... I think they have some very practical things to teach us about Christianity and the Christian life. Here, here's the overarching one, and i got some sub-points to it. And that is this. Like them, in order to be a servant of Jesus, one must first come to know Jesus personally. In other words, what we see here that Luke gives us this little picture in the backdrop of how Jesus' ministry has functioned, this is what we don't see. Hey, ladies, we need your money. 
We need your service. Cook and clean our food and clean our clothes. We need that. You do that. You're faithful with that. We will give you, or Jesus saying, I will give you salvation, forgiveness of your sins. That is not what's going on. Instead, what is happening is a historical example of living out the parable that Jesus just told. There are two debtors. And neither one had the ability. It was impossible for them to pay. And the point was, Jesus forgave them all their debt. And then he asked a question. Which one of these two loves me more, Simon? The one who's forgiven much. Yes. She who is forgiven much. First. Loves much. That's what's happening. No one can rightfully serve the Lord until that Lord, the Savior, is your personal Savior. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be personally saved, to meet Christ, there's something of the content of the Gospel that you must know. Now, see, in the context here, what's happening is this. The women are in the backdrop supporting the ministry. The ministry of what? The ministry of preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. And it's why they're doing it. They believe it. They believe what? What they know of the Kingdom of God coming and invading in the person of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. In other words, they are embracing that He is the fulfillment of what for centuries the prophets have said was coming. And it's here. And in summary, it is that we have seen Jesus is preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is coming in two stages. His first coming and His second coming. In His first coming... As we look now from this side of the cross, we see things much more clearly. It means to understand this, that the Creator of the universe made all things for His glory. And in the first three chapters of Genesis, the human race fell into sin. And all of its horrendous consequences. And the Gospel of the Kingdom is that very Creator the one true God who exists in three eternal persons, the second person of the Godhead became a genuine, true, 100% human being in the womb of Mary in order to grow up, to live the perfect human life in place of sinners, and to die as a substitutionary, sacrificial sacrifice where the justice of God in His wrath would be poured out against the sins of all who would embrace Him. And on the third day, God confirmed what He did on the cross by literally, physically, historically raising that dead body to new resurrection life. And He appeared for the next five weeks in various different circumstances to many, many people who have testified to us. That's the gospel. It it says, that's what God did. That's the news. And then it says, now therefore, repent and embrace Him. 
And if you do, you will find yourself to be saved, meaning delivered from the guilt of your sin. And in the second coming, He will come back one day. And He will separate the sheep from the goats. And He will not come back as a lamb slain anymore. He will come back with fire in His mouth, with judgment and salvation for those whom He has purchased. Okay. There's something of that basic gospel that one must, but must know. But not only know, not only agree with merely intellectually, I'm raising a Christian culture, okay, uh-uh. But with your heart and your mind, you embrace that message. You embrace, which is no different saying this, you embrace the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to become a Christian is to come to Jesus. As these women did in our text. To give their lives. It wasn't to give their lives to earn anything. You couldn't keep these women away. Please, Jesus, how can we hang with you and serve you. Just to make it real short, let's ask here's, Jesus, can you please explain to me in your own words what the heck is going on when you had Luke write this? What's going on with these women? Explain. I'm going to be bold and say this is his explanation. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. And he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes home and he sells all that he has in order to buy the field. So these women show us that to serve Christ is the outflow of embracing Him as your Savior personally and the message and all that goes together. And when that happens, they show us that it produces change in the person. Luke has already shown us. Remember when the lights finally went on for Peter? Standing in the boat. Fish. Miracle. Okay. He's already known Jesus for a while. And then something happened that day. And he said, depart from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus loved it. And because from there, yes, Hey, Peter, I got you covered, baby. Come with me. And he did. And he left. Oh, Joanna leaves the palace. Now, can you imagine the talk back at Herod's palace? Crazy woman. Get her in line. Kuza. In other words, this is what this passage shows us. Here's, here's my way. Be bold. This is how I think Paul summarizes the dynamic we see in Luke. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. He does it this way in Ephesians 2. For by grace, he could say this to these women, and he can say it to any of us who have embraced Christ today. For it is, Joanna, Mary, Susanna, Alex, Ronnie, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, 
not as a result of any works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship. Joanna would say, yes, yes, yes. Created in Christ Jesus. He's totally changed me. For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, what these women are showing us is that every person who comes to know Christ personally is used by God, the Holy Spirit, to serve others out of love. Every believer is a servant or a minister in that sense. And that's what these women are doing. Let me, here, here's Paul again. Confirm me, Paul, please. Here it goes. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. And Jesus, when He ascended after His resurrection on high, He gave gifts to the church. First, He gave apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, and then pastor-teachers. Get it? He's not done. Why? In order to equip the saints, the believers, for the work of service or ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. See, the idea that, that Christians are people that merely go to church and sit on a Sunday morning and put their time in, I listen to the sermon, I'm singing, I did my religious thing, is utterly unbiblical. The life of a Christian is the life of a minister, a servant of you being used to build up the body of Christ with whichever varying gifts or your ability to see need and, and to meet that need. That's why the New Testament gives us a number of lists that, that we refer to as the gifts. All right? And I don't have time to read all four or five lists. And if I, if I, I'm going to read a couple in a minute, just portions. But if I, if I did, don't assume that, oh, every gift that there is, they're all listed in the New Testament. No, they're not. But, but we get the flavor of the... Because Christ, remember, why does He give gifts that we use them to love others? Because He loves you. He wants you to have that joy of expressing it outwardly that way. So, for instance, Paul writes in Romans 12 to the church, to believers, to born-again people in the community. Here he goes. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then use it in proportion to your faith. If service, then do it in your serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes, let him do it in his generosity. The one who leads, let him do it with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Another list. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Now, in the body of Christ, in the local churches, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but it's the same Lord. 
And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Every believer. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, just, just it's not a whole teaching on the gifts of Spirit. I don't have time this morning. But basically, the, when you look at them, the divided, may, I think you can say into two basic categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts, if you kind of categorize them in looking at the gifts. Now, I say that to say, you look at our text, those three verses. You have Jesus, and He's taking the twelve, and He's training these guys. And it's even going to happen before His death, we're going to see. But then after His death and His resurrection, as preachers, leaders, elders, apostles, missionaries, speaking gifts of these guys. And He gives us behind the scenes service gifts happening with these faithful God-oriented women. And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, every person, every gift is essential for the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Do you look for ways to serve like these women? Do you operate in the gift or gifts that God has given to you? Do you serve when you see there's a need, even though that's not part of your quote-unquote gift mix? See, here's another thing. When we look at the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, for instance, whoa, look at that lady. She is, and this may be true, she is really especially gifted in hospitality. When we look at gifts like hospitality, it's a clear one listed a couple times, that same gift, though, that she's gifted at is commanded of all believers. And a lot of the gifts of the Spirit work that way. Gifts are those things that you are naturally good at. That God sovereignly has put in you. A lot of it may even come through training. And you use those for the glory of God. Those are the gifts. And there are other gifts that are not like that. They're, they're like at the spur of the moment. I just really feel I've got to say that. It might be a prophetic thing. Or, and, and so there's a number of supernatural too. So God does these differing gifts. So that's why the New Testament has no problem saying the gift of prophecy or the gifts of healings and at the same time the gift of helps. You know, that's sort of like the guy on a movie set. Move that over there. What do they call those guys? Okay. So, grips. The gift of grips. The New Testament doesn't take that lightly. It calls them gifts. One thing, therefore, what spiritual gifts and thinking about them are not meant to produce or to create in people is this desperateness, I've got to find my gift mix. While all the while, you're just refusing to do all kinds of things that can be done around you. 
I have the gift of healing. So, I don't need to serve in the nursery. That's not what the list are meant to produce. I have the gift of teaching, therefore cleaning or setting up or washing the toilet. I'm not supposed to do that. I don't have the gift of evangelism, therefore I don't ever need to talk to anybody about Jesus. Now you're missing it again. <laughs> I don't have the gift of empathy like that woman. Boy, therefore I don't have to worry about ever looking for someone who's hurting in church so that I might give them my time and my ear. Uh-uh. You know what? I think I'm pretty safe in saying Jesus' gift mix, you know that term, right? we got books on this stuff, uh, is pastor-teacher, uh, apostle, evangelist, gift of miracles, gifts of... Okay, you got it? I, I think we'll just say his gift is being the God-man. He's got it all. None of that, none of that meant that he was beyond washing the disciples' feet. The point is to not be sidetracked by, well, what particular gifts do I have? Oh, if you find them terrific, and, and, and it's great, and we ought to. But what's the next chapter after the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians? It's the love chapter. And it was Paul's very point that do not misuse or misunderstand about these gifts. Don't put the cart before the horse. It's about love. That's what's going on in Joanna. That's what's going on in Mary Magdalene. They're forgiven much and they're loving much. How can we be of help? It is about the joy of the Savior delivering you that produces how may I serve like these women. Now, in doing that, what God does is we start to see, I'm really good at that, I'm really good at that. And you start to, okay, I guess I've got a stronger gift here and i got this gift here. You might have lots of gifts, you might have few gifts. But do love, and God knows what He's doing. Can, can you imagine the joy of Mary or Joanna? I mean, they're just go back to they're, they're, they're delivered. The Messiah is here. Something different. No one ever spoke like this. The miracles have happened, and I get to be part of. And every day they're getting to serve Him, Jesus, a meal. That is an extremely important. Thank God for the different personalities and giftings that He puts within His ten thousands of local churches. Those women, if you pull them out, Jesus' ministry, got it, on this level, collapses. If you want, okay, got that? Can you handle that? No? <laughs> No wonder God tells us concerning the body of Christ in its local communities this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. These women, they were not preaching like Jesus, and then the twelve would slowly start to do. They were not teaching, but they were just as important to the gospel ministry of Jesus. Think about it. The, The 13 of them would have been highly limited in their itinerant preaching ministry. Because there's only so many hours in a day. They would have had to spend the bulk of that, I don't know if they had any time left, fishing, For Peter, James, John, Andrew, Jesus, go back to carpentry. Go back to tax collecting, Matthew. There's no time. These women freed them to do that work of ministry. So as I close, do you love the Savior? Then seek to be used. And I, I know you are. And continue to seek to be used in evangelism, hospitality, cooking, cleaning, counseling, empathy, administration, teaching, encouraging, praying, prophesying, serving with the gifts of helps, etc. I can go on and on. It's no accident that Luke placed the example of these women in the backdrop of Jesus' ministry right after the story of the prostitute who was forgiven much and therefore she loved much. Why? Because in all that's said now this morning, the power for every one of us to serve and to love others like these women is our vertical relationship with Jesus. It is that dynamic, that daily pursuit is what sends and empowers missionaries to go to desolate foreign villages. It's that vertical, intimate relationship with Jesus that energizes a guy to clean his local church building every week. It is that that energizes and inspires women to write notes to some other woman going through chemotherapy whom they really don't know and make her a meal as women do in this church through the Help and Hope ministry. It is that relationship with Jesus that causes a Joanna 
to give up the comforts of palace life and endure the hardship of following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the way You've set things up. The way that You have brought us to You savingly by Your Spirit. And then You didn't cover up our mouths and our hands and anything else we need to overflow in joy. But You say, raise Your hands, sing a song, pray, give, help, love. That You have given us that natural expression of our thankfulness and joy and love of being conduits of Your Gospel in its manifest differing forms. You are May you continue to implant these realities in each and every one of us so that we will experience you more and deeper in the extension of showing love.